Thought I should duck out. Evening, everybody. So we'll turn to uh, turn to Hebrews 10 as we carry on with our study here tonight. So <clears throat> let's um we'll pick up here starting at uh we'll read from verse nineteen to the end of the chapter, but just are, are transitioning in. We're really wanting to cover verses twenty six to the end for the most part tonight. Um, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. You had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. We'll just end there. Um, I can end there with you because we've already covered a bunch of things already and we know where we're going. To end there just abruptly, of course, would bring quite distress on many perhaps who are just diving into this for the first time, uh, but nonetheless we just ask the Lord to help us understand what we've read here. Our Father in heaven, we do pause in your presence and we thank you for your word.
the word which um, is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, as we learned earlier on in our lessons. And we pray that as we uh, turn to it, we might look at it and, and in it behold our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. He is the one who uh, has done all things well. He's the one who currently, uh, your word tells us, is seated in the heavenlies waiting until his enemies be made his footstool. And so we pray that as we are here, and he directs us, uh, that we might encourage, be encouraged along the way. And we do thank you for the exhortation that comes to us and pray that we might be uh, earnest about uh, how we respond to it. And so, Lord, help us tonight as we um, understand uh, these things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> out, of, out of this portion here, uh, one of the important takeaways is really found in verse um, 36. It points out there something that we need, and, and that is this. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. The life of a Christian, as has been said many times, is not a sprint, is it? The idea is that it's it's something where we, we pace and continue. And it's a, it's, a, um, it's a life that is from the start of being saved until we're taken home to glory. And the idea here is, and, and beyond there truly, but as far as for practical purposes tonight, we're looking really at, at our lives here as believers walking in these bodies. <clears throat> and, and it's something that obviously from what we have learned up so far in the book of Hebrews, it's for a purpose for which the Lord has ordained and directed. We're not here um, for ourselves to just enjoy the bliss of not having to face a fiery hell, but rather to we've been brought strangely into this relationship with the Lord through the once and for all sacrifice of his son, uh, not because he owed it to us in any stretch. It says that we were strangers from all the promises that he had made uh, to Israel, uh, strangers from the covenants of promise. We were without God and without hope in this world, in fact. And so, uh, not to be put off by the fact that uh, the children of Israel largely had, had not um, demonstrated the character of God as they had been commanded. We talked about that first covenant there last week. And uh, they really had failed. That was really the problem with that first covenant, wasn't it? That uh, the shortcoming was the people. They, they were not able to keep this, the commandments. But had they been able to do so, then they would have been able to witness of the character of God uh, where he brought them. And so here now we've been brought into this relationship uh, for a number of reasons, I suppose. Uh, uh, but one is to carry on in that work and at the same time to uh, provoke that nation by, you know, by a, <laughs> a nation, an ignorant nation, 
to jealousy. It's really a marvelous thing. And uh, Romans 11 explains this uh, amazing wisdom of God who dreamed it up in the first place. And so, so here we are, brought into this great place of privilege, and we see that our lot today, again, is not just to live well, but to walk in faith. He, um, he mentions here, he quotes, verse, um, in verse 37, he quotes Habakkuk, and we'll turn there in a, a little bit, but... Um, uh, sorry, verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. The idea is that a life of faith, that is walking, trusting the Lord, regardless of what we're directed to do, is what he requires for us to fulfill uh, our purposes here on the earth. And that's the whole idea of verse 36. That's why in this portion I kind of highlighted it as the key verse that we have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. We're here to do the will of God. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you just turn over, you'll notice that, that the book closes with that thought too. It says in uh, chapter 13, <clears throat> um, beginning at the start of the sentence in verse 20, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We're to do the will of God, what's pleasing in his sight. And so before we even want to take a look at what might be considered the harder, troubling portions and passages we've read, we want to remind ourselves that our purpose here is to do his will. Uh, was it was, whose letter did you read? And he, he quoted the verse that says, "You have not chosen me; I've chosen you." The point there was, I I call the shots, not you. And that's what that's what's being uh, indicated to us here. Not only that uh, we're to do the will of God, but um, it seems as though something has derailed a little bit in the lives of people that he's writing to. And I just wanted to uh, turn, look at a few of the things that he's mentioned so far. Just just go back. Uh, single verses only we'll read. But we understand the context now. So in chapter 3, in verse 12, he says to these people who were, were um, we know by all the statements concerning them, that these are believers in the Lord Jesus. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Seems as though there's an urgent command given here that there's a very real possibility that somebody could have in them what's known as an evil heart of unbelief. And as a result, could turn from the living God. And that is, if our lives are to walk in faith, what we can do is say, no. Okay. So, um, he emphasizes that in chapter 3. Notice in chapter 5, in verse uh, 11, points out that given time, it's possible if one doesn't uh, continue on in this 
um, long-distance marathon, so to speak, that one can become dull of hearing. They're not putting into practice the things that they've been learning. So that's chapter 5, verse 11. Uh, speaking of Melchizedek, you remember, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. You can imagine that if he's trying to convey some real truths that they're going to need to keep going, and if they're dull of hearing because they haven't really grown properly, it's going to be a difficult task. But he presses on confident that they will be able to move on from here. And so uh, we, did dis- we did notice while we were there that uh, solid food, says verse 14, belongs to those who are full age, those that have uh, continued on, uh, become complete. Uh, that is, those who, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. So here we are, we're coming to a passage. We need to understand what it means. And it seems as though those that uh, have been consuming meat and putting it into practice are going to be able to see how these hard things work in real life. Because that's where we live, isn't it? We're in real life here. And the idea is that this book is either relevant for us or it's not. And, um, so that's the second thing. We can become dull if we don't spend time applying what we're hearing to our real lives. Um, and again, that's doing the will of God. Notice, uh, so we just read here in chapter 10, um, verse 25 reminds us that there's uh, one, of this, one of the pitfalls is in verse 25, it says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. It's, it's so important for us to realize how dangerous of a world we live in. And, and it's not dangerous in that our salvation is at risk, but the scripture tells us that we face an enemy that walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He really doesn't care to stumble us, only to, to make the Lord look bad. And he seeks to devour us in the, in the course of doing that. So we want to realize that we have a very real adversary out there. And he controls all the things that we face every day. That's why we're exhorted over and over to, to guard our minds, guard our thoughts, our, our speech we're to be careful of. We're to uh, continue in the things we've heard. We're to uh, mark out those among you that have walked in faith and to imitate them. We're to avoid certain things. Uh, and not have... Um, how does it say that in uh, Ephesians? Uh, regarding the unfruitful works of darkness. Uh, I think it's don't even speak of the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them, something like that. The idea is that all around us are things that's going to stumble us. <clears throat> and uh, if we didn't have each other that we could be accountable to. So it says here, right, um, uh, let's consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. The idea is to, to, to provoke one another to love and good works. Um, 
It talked uh, over in chapter 3 where there was concern about our evil hearts. And the idea there was to make sure that we are looking out for one another that way, seeking to correct, being honest with one another. So oftentimes, you know, I can't see my own problems. You think I could by now, but it's true that I can't. And uh, so I need others to be able to help with that. Right? And we all need that. So, <clears throat> so this is really important. That's verse 25 then. Not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It doesn't mean just come to meeting, but I think this is real uh, fellowship at its finest. It's, it's a we're an assembly, a lampstand in Tavistock. And then verse 26, it says, uh, he goes on to say, and you'd, you'd have to wonder why this section was here. So this is really the, the second of two little asides, isn't it, where the writer has paused. So in the chapter, the start of chapter 6, he pauses there, and and he goes on and he explains, and he talks to them there in the same kind of a language, treat, uh, using language that you would expect uh, of a Christian, somebody that's been enlightened and tasted and... Um, here it's talk about uh, somebody who was sanctified by the blood of the covenant and so on. And so we take that in its plain and obvious sense to me. And he's speaking of Christians here, but he, he interjects this idea of sin willfully in verse 26. And maybe I'll come back to that because I should, I should also go over to, uh, let me write that verse down. If you go over to chapter, uh, 12 here. What other kinds of things can overtake us? <clears throat> Verse uh, 15 in chapter 12, it says, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Uh, and he goes on to explain that he couldn't find a, re a place of repentance there, though he sought it diligently with tears. Before he saw there, of course he came back. The idea was his repentance couldn't find any place because the place was gone. It had already been given away. <clears throat> he couldn't be sorry enough because somebody else already took his crown, you could say in New Testament terms, couldn't you? So, these are things that actually overtake the believer, the Christian. And I submit them because I think we need to be very aware that that's the case. Now, so, he goes back and he points out, so now we're in verse, uh, back to chapter 10 and verse 26, and we'll try and sort of cover these. So verses 26 and verse 27, we'll just cover them in, in pairs here, hopefully. But if we sin willfully after we have received knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, fire indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Now, we just uh, have come from chapter 10, where he has pointed out some interesting things like, uh, verse 16 says, I, this is what the New Covenant's all about. I'll put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. It, it seems like we believers have been given something, the Spirit of God, by which we know the truth. So, th there's really not a case 
where the Christian doesn't sin knowingly, isn't it? And the point made in verse 26 of, of the chapter is really that, following up with verse 18, that there is no longer an offering for sin. Well, why is that? Because Christ was offered once. There is no more offering for sin. But then he goes on and says, um, in the next couple of verses, he, he looks back in Moses' day, and he says, well, actually, verse 28 says, anybody who rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. You know, in Moses' law, there wasn't a, an offering for sin willfully either. And this is something that David was very aware of. You can imagine the king. There's nothing he can do, of course, having committed adultery and murder and lying and bringing others into the, into the whole thing. Where there was David with really no legal claim. There was no um, offering he could bring to a priest to, to deal with his problem. As a matter of fact, he, was, he too was oblivious to the problem somewhat. But it wasn't something that could be considered um, in ignorance at all. <clears throat> so, what, is, what does he do? Well, he casts himself on the mercy of God, as you, as you read. Uh, the psalm, uh, Psalm 51, where uh, is, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose uh, transgression is forgiven, whose sins are covered. Something like that. Not that backwards, but the idea was that he, he could do nothing but cast himself on the mercy of God. And it, and it was there that he found the mercy of God, and he was able to go on rejoicing. And this was something that the Jews really didn't grasp, did they? Because they brought this woman caught in, in adultery in the very act, and, and her being brought to the Lord Jesus, they put him to the test. And, and the question was, well, what are you going to do? You're going to uphold Moses' laws because we've got two or three witnesses here. And they had a lot more, just for, just for effect. And we don't know what was written on the ground that day, do we? But whatever he was doing in, in writing there moved them to a, a little bit of self-assessment, I think, he got. And the older, perhaps wiser ones, or quicker to pick up, uh, realized that if they wanted to be held to the same standard, that they too had no offering for their sin. <laughs> they, they really didn't. And so off they went, and of course he forgave her and sent her out and said, sin no more. <clears throat> that to point out, the question that comes up in verse 29 here is uh, a rhetorical question, I suppose, but it's posed as a question for, for you and me to answer. Because as we go on and the, and the Lord has written upon our hearts and we come to places in our daily walk where we're not walking in faith in God, but we're not trusting Him, and things there, there's things that we do that do not represent Him well, uh, we find that we kind of dismiss it. We say that's not really a big deal. But He says here, um, 
of how much worse punishment do you suppose would he be thought worthy who has? And then he goes on really in aggressive terms to state that what the Lord has done for you is so enormous that to treat that lightly as as we sometimes do, and certainly as the Jews ended up treating the laws of Moses as the years wore on, is, I mean, the, the comparison is that we are doing a far greater disservice than they were. That's really what's being stated here, I think. That's, he's using a bit of uh, exaggeration in that sense that what Christ has done is so much bigger to treat that poorly is so much worse. And so the, that's really the answer. How much worse punishment do you suppose would he be thought worth? Aren't you glad that the Lord laid all of that on his son? And he did it once, as was stated there. But he goes on here and he says, uh, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He pauses there, and I want to just turn to that portion. Uh, so keep your finger here, and we'll go back to um, Deuteronomy 32. <clears throat> this is an interesting uh, little portion because um, wait a second, I didn't write that down right. Because I'm not in Deuteronomy. All right. Now, now Deuteronomy 32 um, is a song, and it goes to uh, verse 43. It's a song that the Lord taught Moses to teach the people. Now, before we look at it in any kind of a detail, in fact, we're not going to look at it in the detail, but we are going to just take a look back to chapter 31. <laughs> Can you imagine, <laughs> as Moses is leaving you, and he leaves you with these few instructions, how you must have felt about moving forward. So. Chapter 31 and verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting, that I may inaugurate him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land, where they go to be among them, and they will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them. So that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done and that they have turned to other gods. Now therefore, write down this song for yourselves. 
and teach it to the children of Israel, and put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. And I brought them up uh, to the land flowing of milk and honey, and so on. Um, verse 22 says, Therefore Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. And um, so now down to verse 32, and this is the song. And the portion that gets quoted, by the way, in Hebrews, you can read the rest of the song as you go, but it's in verses 35 and 36. <clears throat> and and it says this. Is this not laid up? Well, it's kind of starting in the middle, but anyway. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? Vengeance is mine. And recompense their foot shall not slip in due time. I'm sorry, their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge His people and have compassion on His servants. What what's going on here is uh, we've skipped over the part where they've played the harlot, and the Lord has turned them over to other nations. We go back to verse 28. This is the nations that uh, that have been the nation that Israel has been turned over to a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their, their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? <clears throat> What's being stated here? is that the boldness of the nation that had come to discipline Israel figured that they did it because they were better, stronger, more powerful than Israel. And the truth was, it wasn't. It was only because Israel's rock had let it happen. And so this whole idea, vengeance is mine, I'll repay is that in Israel's trouble, the Lord's going to come and, and rescue them. So just keep that thought in your mind, and you come back now to uh, our chapter 10. And it says here, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Imagine now, those that, that thought that it was in their strength to win. And he points out here to, he looks back to the song. The idea is, think back to what you've been told up until now. And allow that to be what keeps you going. Because the Lord is going to straighten it all out. Whether you're the problem if somebody else is the problem disciplining you, he's going to straighten it all out in the end. And this is the idea that that they're supposed to hold on to, and they move on. He moves on in this next portion to what really, when when we fall into a situation where sin has overtaken us as individuals, or maybe as an assembly, you know, I think of the fact that uh, Ephesus was was lifted up as one that did great things, but eventually the candlestick was removed. 
right? <clears throat> and here we have, he says, the idea is to, re verse 32, recall the formal days in the which. And he reminds them of when they first came to faith in Christ. They didn't know everything at that time, but they, they embraced it. They realized this was the truth. It was thrilling to them. They couldn't wait to get to meeting. They, they couldn't wait to see what the Lord had for the next day. And even though trouble came, they embraced that too. And they you know, suffered the spoiling of their goods and so on. They were committed to others who were preaching the gospel. It was a, they were busy about everything. But the point is you have to keep going. You have to keep going in order to finish well. And according to this, it says to receive the promise. If you think back to, and we don't really have time now, um, and I didn't purposely shorten my time in order to avoid some of the rest of the chapter here, but in fact, maybe what I will do is, is consider this idea in verse 39. Um, we are not of those who draw back to perdition. You ever wonder who those are that draw back to perdition? I know you do. And so, the, the, the thing is, whatever we don't know about those that draw back to perdition, what we do know is, who's writing to here is not among them. That's good news. But, because you have the rest of the Bible too, you peeked ahead and you saw, oh, there's, there's other places that talk about these folks. And so, therefore, what, what exactly is being said here? And if you turn, uh, I don't know who wants to stay late today, but... Uh, who, who, oh, did you put your hand up here? Oh, you're scratching your head. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so, if you turn here uh, over to, um, well, just Jude, for instance, as an example... Um, he speaks in uh, in verse, call it uh, eleven. Well, actually, if, if we just point out in verse five, he's talking about things that that they once knew. Once knew, it says. So again, we forget things. Verse five. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved eight people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those that didn't believe. Points out in the angelic domain there was a similar thing, and then in Sodom and Gomorrah there was a similar thing again. And he points out that, that there's some who are the masterminds of this. And verse 11 says, Woe to them, they've gone the way of Cain, run greedily in the air of Balaam, the prophet, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So here's, here's some of the masterminds. And in particular, Korah comes to mind because he's, he's somebody found near to where we were already looking in Moses' day. And, and, um, and that's known as the rebellion that was spoken of in Hebrews 3. All right. Anyway, he points out um, that... Let's see, take a look here. Notice this in verse 16. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, 
They mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and on some have compassion, making a difference, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating the garments spotted by the, by the flesh. You've got a situation in uh, Korah's day, in that rebellion, and um, I won't turn there, but look it up, where Korah um, uh, gathered around himself a, a few people, and those people decided that they wanted somebody else in charge because they were quite honestly tired of following Moses. And in fact, they accused Moses of not bringing them into the land flowing with milk and honey, but bringing them out into the wilderness to die. So therefore, of course, they thought they needed a better leader. We will be that leader, they said. Now, what we read about in Jude is these ones here are, are scheduled to be dealt with. But in the process of that, if you were to turn back um, to, um, I guess it's Numbers, right? Numbers 16, uh, where they, where the people were moved and swallowed up in that, swept up into that. They weren't on guard and they started to think, you know what, yeah. It is kind of uh, difficult out here, and maybe they're right. Maybe they're not. Gonna, Moses isn't going to be able to bring us into uh, a land of milk and honey, like he said. Now, what happened to them is, you recall, uh, Korah was swallowed by the earth. The hundred or two hundred and fifty were consumed by fire and you know their um, their sensors were gathered out of the fire by the way keeping with what we just read in Jude gather some uh, pull out of the fire but uh, they were brought out of the fire and given a special purpose and then there were others that also perished in that plague and that had to be stayed too so Moses' question was, and maybe we should read that question. But, so in uh, Exodus 16. Not Exodus 16, Numbers. Numbers uh, 16, and it's in, it's in verse uh, 20. Notice this. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I might consume them in a moment. Right? And they, Moses and Aaron, fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? 
Uh, well, truly, all the congregation was standing close enough to be in trouble, weren't they? But Moses intercedes there, and so the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get away from the tents of Kor, Dathan, and Abiram. And Moses rose and went um, to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch not nothing of theirs, lest, lest you be consumed in all their sins. It is possible, and this is what it, what some of the danger is, by the way, that we're going to consider as we carry on in the later part of chapter 12 of Hebrews, is that you can be standing close enough to those who are going to be dealt with God in the way that he's described there, that they've been appointed to this. Uh, thing, but you can be standing close enough that you get swallowed up in the smoke. That, that's, I think, what we need to be aware of. Now, this doesn't mean we lose our salvation. All right, we are not of, it says, those, and Hebrews doesn't even mention the things I just read. I only went there because I know you're thinking it. So Hebrews doesn't even talk about that. Hebrews is mostly concerned with what's in here. We have a propensity to be led. Other places in the scriptures say, if you get led into these places, you too will, will end up being uh, a casualty. And that's why Jude ends in the very same idea as Moses did there. This is what it really means where it says in verse 22 of Jude, and on some having compassion, making a distinction, making a difference. Moses rushed into the place, interceded for the people, and then was given a command and said, okay, tell them to make a, a difference, a distinction between them and them. You make that distinction and that will deliver them. And so he acted, and he acted fast. And then it says, on others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. I would suggest that that has more to do with the idea of... Uh, the, the ones that were swallowed up, uh, their, their censors was all that was remaining. They weren't able to pull the people out. The people did become casualties there, as did others. But the, uh, the thing was, for the Christian today, is to recognize the very real risk that people are in and go to them in fear of our own testimony and our own weaknesses, and pull people who are, are being swallowed up in, in, um, in things that are going to dis destroy them. By the way, this I, the word for perdition, and I wanted to get this in too, is, is um, it's sometimes translated destruction. It's sometimes translated uh, waste. It's found in places where it's in the same verse with the actual word for destruction. But the idea is really of, of a place of waste. You could imagine if, if a tornado came through here and destroyed this building, it, it, would, be a, it would be wasted. It, would be nothing, it wouldn't be useful anymore. It wouldn't uh, any longer be able to be used for its purpose. In fact, if you were to turn to Mark uh, 14 and the similar passage in Matthew, you'd find out that it's, it's used in that sense uh, directly. 
where the woman comes in with the alabaster box and breaks it and and uh, pours it over the Lord. And what happens is the disciples say, to what purpose was this waste? The idea was in their minds, there was no value in using it like this. It's used in a similar way in Philippians 1 where... Um, uh, where the way the Philippians are being treated by their adversaries is to them an evident token of perdition. That is, the adversaries think that the treatment of the Philippians proves that their lives are being wasted. He says, no, to you it's of salvation, deliverance. And this is, if, if you read through, you're going to start, there's about 20 places where it's found. Pick them all up. You'll see that it it fits quite uh, neatly, and as as we start to understand that, we can realize how it does apply to a believer who has not continued on. That their lives can be really one that just that didn't fulfill the, the purpose. This is why uh, chapter 3 we were discussing the idea of being brought into rest, finishing the work. And so that's why... Chapter 10 here says, after you've done the will of God. That's the purpose. And so the just must live by faith to do this. We're going to go on in chapter uh, 11 on Sunday and see that without faith it's impossible to please God. Therefore, this is, this is really what we ought to do. So, as the writer here was persuaded better things of them, so we understand that this is, these are the things that the Lord has, has persuaded for us too. Aren't you glad that Jude finishes with the idea that unto him who is able to keep you and follow and present you spotless uh, is our Lord. Let's just bow in a word of prayer as we consider what's before us. Father,